Hi, Simon Andrews. Delighted to welcome you to Radio Fix, the new dimension of our weekly newsletter, Mobile Fix. This is a podcast where we go deep on the subjects we cover in Fix. Um, and this is part two of a great conversation with an old friend of mine, Rory Sutherland, former colleague. Um, there's no one smart in the ad business. If you haven't listened to part one, make sure you do. But part two, um, here we go. Whereas, uh, if you've got a good product, the consumer can reliably infer that the fact that you're investing up front in the expectation of its widespread repeated popularity. As I said, we'll park things like funeral plans. Yes. We'll park things like pensions because they tend to be a one-off purchase. Uh, estate agents, of course, you know, by the time you discover the house is on a floodplain, it's a, <laughs> they've got their commission, you know. But in anything, by the way, this is very important in flowers because... The reason you don't get much fake advertising in flowers, you do, orchids are quite yes. often fake advertisers, but orchids, the, the deception only works at the very beginning of the season, which may explain why orchids are rare. The bees get wise and they go, don't go back to that one. It's claiming to have nectar, but it's a liar. Okay. But in most of the cases, it's only worth investing in petals if the bees visit you more than once. So it is biology and Darwinism that sort of, you know, applies here. Now, my contention is that if bees, which, you know, fascinating things though they are, you know, if bees can essentially work out this thing, it wouldn't be impossible that, to borrow Robin White's phrase, I think he uses the phrase, the reputation reflex, it wouldn't be impossible that humans have evolved something similar, which is, the, the, because if you think about it, the ability to, to differentiate between someone who's lying and someone who is reliably telling the truth is of enormous value in evolutionary terms. And the fact that we might have evolved an instinct for credible communication, which partly actually factors in not only what the message is, but the cost of making it, or the effort entailed in making it, uh, that doesn't strike me as remotely unlikely that humans have a kind of instinct around reputation, which is, what has this person got to lose if they're lying? So I'm fascinated by D2C as these new brands that are you know, using social media, growing very quickly to a relatively small size, like bonsai brands. But I guess, you know, some of the ways that you're using Instagram in a certain way that looks part of their you know, social media, if there was something wrong with that product, your friends would have told you about it, you'd hear back from it from there. So there's a little bit of that happening in there. Yes. A smaller level, I guess, isn't there? No, no, and actually social proof. I mean, uh, you know, if you've got 27 friends who like this brand. Yes. Um, that's not, that would be a natural instinct that humans would, broadly speaking, say, someone has certainly got more to lose by recommending a dud product to their friend. Yes. You've got to have a certain degree of confidence in something before you, you know, a restaurant, for example, before you recommend it to a friend. With well, the classic member get member, your classic direct marketing again, you know, that only works when oh, you've no. got a lot of happy customers. No, patently, yeah. I mean, if, if people were indifferent uh, or, you know, or indeed embarrassed by their association with your brand, they're not going to do that. No. Um, I mean, no, no. I mean, I think there, there are, you know, there are multiple techniques, but one part of advertising to me seems to work precisely through its inefficiency. And therefore, if you're not careful, you're reducing the conviction people feel in advertising by making it more efficient. Because you could be, by efficient advertising, if you think about it, people who are very, very efficient advertisers are con men. 
in many cases. You know, you pick off your your, your yes. victim. Yeah. You identify your sucker, and then you go in with a very hard, concentrated sale. There's there's a wider question which no one looks at as well, because I think people believe in the efficient market hypothesis. Okay. I noticed something very weird, which is my daughters kept asking me to go and buy them replacement tights for school. Okay. And I said, okay, I'm sick of this. Why do you keep asking me? They, they, they ladder or something. Yeah. Okay. So I said, well, let's try buying some really expensive tights and seeing if they actually pay for themselves. So I went online and looked for Wolf and something yes. or other, no, whatever, whatever thing it is. Okay. Now, the extraordinary thing was I got advertising for this category for about the next three bloody months. And it suddenly occurred to me it's an insanely high margin category, right? Now, here's the question, okay, if you're Unilever or you're selling breakfast cereal where the margins are fairly small and you have to compete for attention, this is the problem that bedeviled direct mail, if you think about it. It was, now, direct mail was a different case because you didn't actually have an auction, it was the cost of a stamp. But if you're competing for attention and you know 50 things about me, one of which is I like a particular breakfast cereal, Okay. Yeah. And the other thing is that I buy premium tights for my daughter. And the third thing is I'm in the market for, um, uh, you know, health insurance or something. Yeah. Again, financial products have stupid margins generally. Okay. Then anybody with a lower margin product, by definition, is overpaying for my attention. So, how, because the problem that always happened in direct marketing is that it was overwhelmingly dominated by a few categories. Now maybe that's the case with maybe that's the case with digital advertising. It's a wonderful way of promoting certain categories. If you're a mobile phone network, okay, yeah. where it's an annual contract. If you're Harry's Razors, okay, or you're um, what's the other razor one? Um, a Dollar Shave Club. Club, okay. Yeah. If you're a subscription product, if you're a product where one click or decision now. Actually, funnily enough, I subscribed for Australian underpants recently. There's some weird <laughs> guy in Queensland who's producing Nobby's underpants. <laughs> and I actually thought, actually, having a pair of pants arrive once every two months from Australia, yeah. kind of interesting. Okay. Now, it's worth him spending quite a lot of money to attract me as a customer because my. Uh, first of all, my loyalty will be very, very high by dint of it being a subscription something that doesn't happen with something I buy in a shop. But also my likely lifetime value is going to be reasonably high because there's a minimum length to the contract yeah. I've signed. Now, I mean, it's, it's, it, there seems to me a bit of a problem arising there, which is that at no level can digital advertising priced and distributed as it currently is be actually equally useful to all parts of the uh, of you know, the property market might be yeah. hugely valuable okay um uh so by if that if i'm right in saying that that actually digital advertising will always be more valuable than some people than another then worthwhile moments of attention will always be more worthwhile to certain categories of goods or services than others which means that some advertisers should not use it yeah, I think I'd agree with that. There's two things in there, I think. One is the cost of um, taking part in that auction, if you don't click on it, is zero. True. So we have this other thing, missing metric. If you can measure, I'm pissing somebody off, I'm showing him the ad for Walford tights, but hey, it's not costing me any money, so so what? You know, so people aren't thinking through the reputational issue of that from there. We'll keep doing that. I think the other thing is that some, the, the, the marketplace has moved towards, I want Rory Sutherland as cheaply as possible. 
So I can reach him in the FT, but it's quite expensive. When I reach him when he's looking at um, somewhere, you know, on Yahoo Mail, he's much cheaper, so I'll put my ad there. When your, your behaviour is very different, the content is very the different. The context is completely different, yeah. because... And I would also argue that it is weird that media owners have allowed that to happen. And it is arguably immoral that you do that, OK? So the value of a medium was always convening power. Yeah. We can get a homogeneous group of people of value to advertisers in one place in a way that the advertiser cannot do on his own yes. by the provision of high-value content, right? And the advertiser will therefore, once we have convened this audience in the Daily Telegraph, the advertiser will therefore pay the Daily Telegraph for assembling that audience in the first place. Now, if you can simply hang around outside Waitrose, as it were, and bug people off as they come out, right, that's fundamentally breaking some sort of... No, so how on earth... OK, now, interestingly, there's a guy at um, Mozilla Foundation called um, Don Marty. And one of the things they're looking at with new browser software is essentially saying, if you want to reach Telegraph readers, you pay the Telegraph to reach them. Yes. The fact that I'm a Telegraph reader is, to some extent, to the credit of the Telegraph, OK? And moreover, you don't want your advertisements to Telegraph readers to go to them when they're reading totally inappropriate content, in some cases content that may be deleterious to your brand image. But secondly, also, the value of that advertisement and its credibility was partly derived from the fact that the Telegraph allowed it to appear where it did, OK? Now, I always have this... I remember when I worked with you, actually. It might have been... I'm pretty sure that was it. I always wanted to find this answer out, which is, if you wanted an ad for incontinence pants to appear in the second page of Vogue, how much would you have to pay? You no said. money would have bought no, that. No, I always thought, OK. I said, try asking a million, because then they would have... Someone would have rung Cy Newhouse, wouldn't they, and said, <laughs> Cy, they're offering a million dollars for a page to put incontinence pants in page three of Vogue. But actually, Cy would have said, it's tempting but we're not going to do it, right? So I once put a Tesco ad, so when Tesco were really doing food ads, we put it into Vogue, into the eating section of Vogue. It's a really beautifully shot ad about Alfresco and whatever. We try to position Tesco that jolly good course, yeah. But, you know, the ad is in the back of the magazine because the front is for Chanel and Gucci and Prada, etc. from there. So that context is So they wouldn't put it. So they wouldn't put it in the front no. half of the magazine? But you, no. if you flick through the back of the magazine, you'll find the P&G ad for shampoo would be there, but it'd be on page 87, left yep. hand in the back of the thing from there. <laughs> I've always wanted to try that because the curation that the person does yeah. and the fact that they accept the advertisement and consider it worthy of display yeah. uh, is part of the value add by the media owner. The convening of the homogeneous audience in an atmosphere which is conducive to the sale of what you offer is it's not just space you're selling. It's a whole bunch of intangibles as well, OK? But you're so, so right, Ray. But if you go by the papers today, or any of the papers, you open it's full of ads that you've heard of, your mum's heard of, that everyone's heard of, they're famous brands. Mm. You go to the website or the mobile site of the same... Any old crap will appear. And they're not there. No. So which media genius thought, I've got to reach Telegraph readers, but only the ones who buy the newspaper, those with an iPhone, will just ignore them. And you've got a breakdown. One, you shouldn't <coughs> sell them separately, I don't think. But maybe that's how, how, how is that okay? So how is that business where you affect? Because okay, there is a famous case where a casino used to go to a rival casino, uh, and it would write down the registration numbers of people in the car park. Right? Yeah. It would go to a bent cop who would access the police number yeah. database. It would therefore get their name and addresses and give them really generous offers to gamble somewhere else. Right? 
Now, it's. I think most people would argue that's completely unethical practice. Yeah. You know, you can't stop someone taking a forty-eight sheet, you know, sheet poster. You know, but I would say that the the stealing of someone else's customer relationship in that explicit way is a bit dubious. But he's an observer. You think I'm saying? Okay, so here's Rory. We've seen him on the. We bought him out of the Guardian. We saw Rory was there. So he's got Rory's a Guardian reader. I'm not going to pay the Guardian any more for that. I'll look out for him on. You know, Yahoo or eBay or whatever. It's equivalent of you know, people just come around knocking our door. Don't buy businessmen through newspapers. You can buy them in the gents' toilets at the M6 service station. Yes. Yeah. And so, yes, it's the same audience. The context is a little bit different from that. There's the some, there's certain things which are probably brilliant to sell yes. the gents' toilets. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure there are. There was a fantastic ad, actually, uh, for Don't Drink and Drive which was above the gents' toilets, which said, if this is the second time you've been here this evening, you should probably get a taxi. So now, that's a brilliant piece of use of gents' toilets, OK? But that, but that but, the creative knew where the media was going to go, exactly, and the media yeah. knew what the creative was going to say, and that, you know, that's a disconnect now. So you've got to talk to someone about, you know, you're buying the media, fantastic. Who's doing the creative? Oh, we've got some guy in Albania who's doing it cheaply. You know. So the talent in our industry doesn't get to look at these guys. No, so the extraordinary thing is, that I've said, you know, the amount of money that your typical client is spending on a martech stack okay for five percent of that money they could have hired david abbott for his entire working life yes okay now the extent to which people are happy working on stuff which appears to be mathematical and their discomfort they have they have an intense discomfort in spending money trying to optimize the alchemical part of the equation the bit where you genuinely create magic by saying um uh, for you know have sky i mean have sky for 50 percent of the price of a newspaper yeah, you know, yeah. in other words, that's not a. No, 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 I'm being a bit Don Draper. That is not a great creative ad. But, but the value of reframing something in that way, you know, it's very, you know, it's it's, yeah. it's advertising 101. It's, you know, but nonetheless, it's worth experimenting with. If you can find an even better creative way of saying it, fantastic. But no one seems to be looking at that possibility at all. I think it's changing. We talked about Google doing that now. We had this conversation. You know, so we've got all these titan possibilities. Why are you listening to me five banner ads? Oh, well, that's all the budget plays for. I, 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 I also think that I also think the media agencies played a fucking blinder, screwing over creative agencies. Really, a part of it was out of revenge, I think, because they felt they'd been ill-treated, probably rightly, in the past. Okay. Um, now, in fairness, I worked in direct marketing, where the relationship between creative and, and targeting was hugely mutual and respectful, simply because if you didn't have a good targeting or media person to work with, the chances are your best ideas wouldn't run. Yeah. And so there was always a trade-off, which is, OK, that's a beautiful creative solution, but unfortunately it only works to six people, so we do need a slightly larger audience. And so there was that kind of symbiotic relationship. I think the, I think there was an element where media people, and they do a very clever thing, which I was noticed, they always love to use the phrase, the creative agency. Because the creative agency, it's like dog whistle. Okay? <laughs> the creative agency is full of people who love being called creative. And when they hear themselves described as the creative agency, they roll over on their backs and wave their little <laughs> paws in the air. Meaning Meanwhile, what the client hears is this bunch of wacky fruitcakes who wouldn't appear now if it hit them in the face. So it's a brilliant way of actually uh, uh, flattering the people to their face while actually subtly degrading them in the eyes of your client. And what's happened from there is the idea, the old sort of muscle memory that if you put yeah, 10% of your budget into production was quite good. That's been dropped down and down and down and down. Well, it's a very interesting one because... You might argue that if you don't have a visibly expensive medium, if you believe in costly signalling, you should compensate with visibly expensive something else. Yes. Okay. So in the way that 
you know, um, wedding invitations, okay. Well, I always joke about this. The one that was actually a friend of mine, I always used to tell the joke, a friend of mine did actually get a, a wedding invitation where it had actually gone through the franking machine at work. <laughs> which I was thinking, you know, it's kind of like, okay, how serious are you about inviting me to your wedding when you can't even buy a stamp, right? <laughs> but, but, you know, in a sense, okay, it only costs, you know, 66p to post yeah. it, but the paper, the card, all that embossing stuff, what you might call the sort of... Yeah, the costly signaling. Or, as I said, a creative idea, by the way. This is a really, really important point, OK? So let's imagine that the credibility of an advertisement consists in part of in the cost of its creation, OK? Yeah. Or transmission. Now, it's mentioned in my book. I was working with Steve Barton, very good account okay. man. And we had to do this thing for Microsoft, and the purpose was to get about 300 IT directors to trial Windows NT 32-bit advanced server, I think it was called, okay, which was quite a bit of effort. And we had to convince them that this, was a re this new product was a really, really big deal. And Steve said, what we're really looking for is theatre. We want to do an expensive mail pack, right? And he said, I want you to come up with a great award-winning, fantastic, luscious, over-the-top idea to promote this product. Because the fact that we're spending money on it, A, says it's only going to a small number of people. Because you wouldn't, you even Microsoft at that time wouldn't have sent a £20 pack to a million people, right? Um, uh, secondly, it says this product is of enormous importance because we're spending money telling you about it. And he said a very clever thing as, a, as an aside. He said, come up with a brilliant creative idea. If you can't come up with a brilliant creative idea, write a really, really nice letter and we'll send it to them by FedEx. Right. Now, if you think about it, you either have elaborate creative delivered by Royal Mail or you have simple creative delivered by FedEx. And that suggests there's a kind of multiplier there, which is if you can't do an expensive medium, you should do an expensive treatment. Now, yeah. that might be the use of a celebrity. It might be fantastic production values. It might be sheer creative ingenuity. So the example I always give is, okay, if you've got two wedding invitations and they both contain the same information, the parents of Mr. You know, yeah. Mr. Blah, 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 invite you to the wedding of their, what is it, their daughter, blah, 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 blah. Okay. Uh, okay, now, if that information arrives by email, it's a slight less of a kind of three-line whip than if it arrives on embossed card with gold edges. It's American psycho business card conversation. Isn't it? I'm sorry, yeah. this is yeah, exactly, exactly. The, how how beautiful is the font and what cards it made? And what what's the what's the card made? What's the yeah. GSM? You know. Now someone said, okay, what happens if you haven't got much money, and you want you want your wedding to seem important? Well, that's no problem. You have to use something else that's costly and in scarce supply, of which money is only one thing. Two other things might be effort or talent, okay? Now, if, for example, you were a skint but highly talented guitarist and you wrote a song inviting people to your wedding that yeah. was quite a good song, but you have to have a reasonable degree of talent, okay? I would not attempt this. <laughs> and you that. posted it to YouTube and you emailed people a link to your song. That would be a great winning invitation. Yes. I feel an obligation to go to that wedding, okay? Equally, you can do something uncreative, which is the parents of their daughter Luella, blah, 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 blah. And you can send it through first class post, not second class, you know, gilt envelope, bit of ribbon, yes. uh, tissue paper lining to the envelope, because you've spunked a lot of money on this one. And then there are other solutions, you know, there's user celebrity because patently, you know, Robert De Niro doesn't turn up for free. Yes. Um, but at some level, and bees do this, you know, they signal the desirability of a, of a newfound area of flowers uh, by dancing for longer. Requires more effort. Right. Proof of sincerity. 
Okay. Now, arguably, I would say that when you do something digital, uh, Don Marty has a fascinating idea, which is he said, the way I'd restore the front page, the first double page spread of Vogue online is I'd buy Twitter and accept the fact that there is only one ad a day on Twitter. Yes. And it costs you $50 million if you want to place that ad. Okay. No other advertising on Twitter at all. But when you go onto Twitter for the first time in any given calendar day, you're going to get served that ad and you know someone spent $50 million doing it. Super Bowl, basically. Okay. Now, um, in the same way, I think the problem is, is by trying to make it efficient in every dimension, this is an advertisement delivered to very few people, efficient, at very low cost, efficient, using no creative effort, efficient, and with the minimum of, of thought or craftsmanship or effort deployed, efficient. You haven't produced a brilliant ad, you've no. actually produced a terrible ad. Because your brain's trained to look for things that are unexceptional and, and ignore I, them. And as a creative person, I used to be wrong about this, by the way, Mayor Culper, because we all have self-interest. I used to think the creative content was important and the craftsmanship and the typography. And I was going, you know, when, when you work with an art director, you go, what's he tossing on about the kerning <laughs> for? Who the hell cares about that? Actually, the consumer... Yes. Uh, David Ogilvy was wrong there. David Ogilvy was very rarely wrong, but one of the things he said is, you know, uh, he always imagined two housewives on a bus saying, I, you know, I, I, I would have bought that product, but they set the headline in Futura Bold. Now, I think he was wrong there because actually you do notice something about the... If you, I, I worked with Steve Dunn for a time and those Guardian ads, which had that, you know, the massive capital in the yes, middle. With, yes. I mean, geez, OK, I mean... You're a newspaper. You want to show that you genuinely care about your output in every respect. There was there was a degree of kind of love, thought, and attention that was put into their Lagos Delaney presses yes. at their best, yeah. which it kind of made me too mess, you know. <laughs> and actually, that was where David Ogle was wrong, you know. Actually, a not bad headline, beautifully set, still makes it a better ad. And Comic Sans looks cheap to everybody now, doesn't it? Yeah, although <laughs> there's a very interesting thing. There is a thing called counter signalling. Um, which is where you deliberately don't bother. I mean, Hal Henry did a few counter-signalling ads, didn't they? Yes. Citrus Spring. Do you remember that? Which just had a picture of their client locked off, shot on video, saying, uh, I, do you remember this? <laughs> I went to see my advertising agency to ask them to do a campaign uh, uh, for new Citrus Spring. They said, that's great. We'll need a three-week shoot in a flute plantation in the Bahamas and uh, something else. And I said, will you tell them that it's made out of spring water? They said, if you're going to be clever, Bob, you can do the ad yourself. Now, typical Hal Henry kind of postmodernist stuff. Now, occasionally you can do that. You can do the, you know, that old route of, we don't have to, you know, this product's so great, we yeah. don't have to care. Very dangerous to do it. The people who do it, by the way, academics, the discovery, and uh, sorry, the discovery of the Higgs boson was actually announced on a slide that partly contained comic sounds. <laughs> okay. Now, interestingly, academics, if you think about it, scientists have a horror of presentation skills. Because the whole point of a science should be that the facts speak for themselves. Therefore, anybody who dresses up their presentation of a communication is to be viewed with suspicion. Because why would they go to all that effort? Why would you go to all that effort if they, if they were confident in the result, you see? So occasionally, it's worth remembering, this is one of the you know, things I mentioned, that the opposite of a good idea is sometimes a good idea. That you know, occasionally you can go to the other extreme. Um, but, I, but nonetheless, I think that fact that that efficiency and effectiveness in certain areas of life are actually not bed, natural bedfellows. They're actually contradictions. Well, I think you talk about you know, arithmetic and people who are sort of obsessed with that. And I think there's 
the world looks at people who do spreadsheets versus PowerPoint in different sort of ways. You know, I've always been a PowerPoint person, and a lot of people, I trust the guy with the spreadsheet because that adds up, and a PowerPoint is just lots of waffle. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the only point I would say is that you might argue that we're, we're we've been very, I mean, there are lots and lots of things, by the way, which the human humanity was very, very slow to discover. Um, the randomised control trial, weirdly. I mean, advertising got there before medicine did. I read that, you were right. fascinated by that. Yeah. yeah. Um, statistics were incredibly late, addition to mathematics, so probability and statistics came very, very late. Um, and it's worth remembering that the fact that at the moment, okay, there isn't a kind of science of persuasion. By the way, I don't think there ever will be. In the same, by the way, there won't be. It won't be the same kind of science as you find in Newtonian physics. Okay, because complex things are inherently different. Okay, the rules are different. You can look for patterns. You can look for kind of. You can codify things. I don't think you're ever going to get to the point where you say, "If this, do that." As I said, one of the first points is that in conventional science, there's a right optimal answer. And I think everything that's happening in advertising is a bunch of people who remember schoolboy science trying to look scientific by making it like schoolboy science. Now, Murray Gelman, who died very recently, who's a Nobel Prize winning physicist uh, who kind of postulated or discovered quarks, um, after he'd won his Nobel Prize, he kind of devoted the rest of his life to the study of complexity and co-founded the Santa Fe Institute and so on. And he more or less says in this extraordinary interview, he says, I know that in this field, in my lifetime, there's a chance I'm going to make a meaningful discovery because the what we're looking for, i.e. certainty, lack of ambiguity, is just the wrong thing. As I mentioned, you know, you can be a great restaurant because the service is fantastic. Yeah. I think we've had an example of that today. You know, every single thing that people have done here yeah. uh, at uh, uh, the Pig at Bridge near Canterbury, <laughs> I'll give them a, a helpful plug, has been absolutely exemplary, OK? But you can also be a successful restaurant by being famously rude. Yes. And the fact that actually reality doesn't map onto perception or behaviour in a neat one-to-one -one way, depending on context, mood, all sorts of framing things, comparison, narrative, story, expectation, the same thing can arouse totally different reactions in us. And therefore, by arousing totally different emotional reactions, it will drive completely different behaviours. What that means is that, A, it means that alchemy is possible because you don't have to change the reality. You just have to change the perception. Yes. The same thing can be cheap or expensive depending on what I compare it to or depending on the story I tell. OK. And by the way, with my dad, that really did happen like that. Uh, you know, he just went, oh, 60p a day, I spend £2 a day on newspapers, I'll be able to watch Nazi megastructures on Discovery, whatever it is. And he's now, I mean, eight years later, at 88, he's a huge Sky evangelist. He wouldn't dream of cancelling his subscription, OK? But it required that reframing to get him to actually sign up in the first place. And the fact that actually... Um, the what something is in terms of the behaviour in humans which it gives rise to is as much a product of what you might call noise as of signal. And yet we obsess about the signal, 
And actually, what you need to do is change the, the noise. The the noise. But so it was very interesting Murray Gelman said this, because he basically said, look, the, you know, this isn't this isn't the kind of science where you go, um, look, you know, we've measured the, you know, we've measured the spin value for boron, it's three. <coughs> it, <coughs> it's simply something where you can, and I think it's very interesting if you read, for example, Robert Cialdini's books, that the rules, social proof, for example, versus scarcity, in a sense, a lot of Cialdini's six principles are kind of contradictory. And advertising has always been contradictory in the sense that you can say, loads of people buy this, so it must be good. Not many people have this, so it must be good. Yes. You know, and, you know, in, in, in one sense, you know, you're not, out of something so non-linear as that, you're never going to get the kind of scientific certainty that I think the people with the... You know the the AI, the algorithms, the uh, computing power, and the data. I don't think because this terrifies me, right? Big data because it all depends on what you have data on and what you don't have data on. Yes. Right now, one, it all comes from the past. Okay, um, and stories over time change. So I mean. A, Daughter of a colleague of mine said, uh, Dad, she was wanting her first flat. Dad, I want to live in Peckham because it's handy for shortage. <laughs> right. Now, if you'd said that in 1988, people yes. would have had you sectioned, basically. Okay, I mean, just the idea of it was fundamentally absurd. But over time, um, I mean, the weird thing is, it, in, in most respects, Shoreditch is just as shitty as it always was, yes. right? Okay, there's graffiti all over the walls, the whole place is run down. But weirdly, because it's a bit like Brooklyn, that thing which genuinely you know i mean in 1988 if you if you teleported me into shoreditch i would have basically run to the nearest police station i think you know is now gritty edgy cool okay so, very early 90s some friends got into because they'd opened a vietnamese restaurant in kingston Road, the first one yeah and i thought great we'll go but there was nowhere in shoreditch to go for a drink before and apart from two or three really grotty pubs no. so imagine in shoreditch in a mile from where we made that decision there's now probably 200 pubs no. and pubs yeah and so the whole, because we're, we've got to we've got to adapt to a changing and unpredictable environment where we will never have full information in order to make decisions. We've evolved a way of making decisions which I think looks for reliable cues or heuristics, which will help us avoid catastrophe. Okay. Now the official narrative of what we're trying to do is if it's a mathematical optimization problem, I'm trying to buy the best television yes. I can. I think the evolutionary instinct is whatever happens, I don't want to buy a shit television. Okay, I really, really, really don't want to buy a shit television. Yeah. And if you want to kill a brand, of course, you know, uh, I mean, uh, you know, if 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 you're thinking of buying a product on Amazon and you read a hundred reviews and all of them are glowing and excited, and then the review number ninety-seven said it burst into flames. Okay, you're not buying that thing, right? Now. Uh, eBay, if you take it, you know, we won't buy from people who are 97% reliable, basically, yeah. even if they're selling at half the price. Now, rationally, we should go, well, there's a 97% chance the goods turn up. I'm paying 50% as much money. Ergo, I'm effectively, why on earth would I pay twice as much to increase by 3% the chance that the goods arrive? Yeah. Okay. Well, we do. And there's a reason for that, which I think mathematically is the whole question of ergodicity, the whole question that variance reduction is a natural human instinct for a very good reason, uh, which is that fortune is path dependent and three unlucky things in a row can lead to extinction. Okay. And therefore, my argument is that 
the, uh, the some maths work being done at the um, London Mathematical Laboratory, combined with some interesting work in kind of evolutionary biology on reciprocal altruism, um, suggests that what we've evolved to do is we use brands not as a way of attaining perfection, but as the reliable means of avoiding disaster. If I buy a Samsung anything, it's going to be pretty good. Okay. Am I paying $200 more than something that's just as good? Probably, but I'm happy to pay that $200 to avoid the 1% chance of total shittiness. It's getting a coffee in an area you don't know. I can go into prep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, that place mm. might be really good, might be a bit crap. So McDonald's, I've often said, is the most successful restaurant in the world because it's really good at not being terrible. Yes. And Nassim Taleb mentions this in his book, that there are a load of people in Milan railway station, you know, one of the great food cities of the world, and they're eating at McDonald's. Why? Because they haven't got long enough to find out where to go, and they know that McDonald's will... Well, first of all, they won't get ill, they won't get ripped off, and they won't find the food significantly disappointing. And so once you understand that, it goes back to something, this extraordinary thing that this guy Joel Raffleson who's still alive. He was a copywriter with Ogilvy in the 60s. He now lives in Chicago. His wife was also a copywriter at the time. And um, uh, she's one, they're both wonderful as a couple. But he, he said to David Ogilvy, he said, I don't think people buy brand B rather than brand A because they think it's better. I think they buy brand B because they're more certain that it's good. And he was really sort of decades ahead of his time in realising that what humans are trying to do is minimise variance um, because if you look at it over the, if you accept the fact that actually uh, your ability to bet tomorrow is contingent on your success at gambling today, and likewise the fact that, you know, a, a run of losses in close succession is much more catastrophic than spaced losses, yes. okay, then a lot of our, the fact that we exhibit loss aversion, start, uh, did you ever watch Life is, to Life is Toff? That fantastic series, which there's a totally objectionable, you know, right-wing, even by bystanders guy, called um, uh, Simon Fucker Fulford. He's, he's not a formal name. I remember him. Incredibly that, yeah. sweary guy. Yeah. And the family, in something like 1250, were given by the king 5,000 acres of land and a house in Devon. And the direct descendant is still there. Okay. So, I mean, it is pretty much, yeah, it's getting on for, it'll be getting on for 800 years of continuous occupation yeah. of the same house. They haven't sold an acre of land. They're, obviously, they've rebuilt the house. Yes. Um, and someone asked him, how do you think you've managed to do this? And, and he said, um, he points up at the ancestral portraits. He goes, oh, terrible, terrible ancestors. He said, I've had alcoholic fuckers. I've had philandering fuckers, gambling fuckers, you know, South Sea bubble fuckers who lose <laughs> all their money. He said, but we've never had two fuckers in a row. <laughs> and the point of that is that if you think about it, that one of the reasons we're cautious is that um, uh, two or three misfortunes hard on their heels. Yeah, you're dead. You're dead. And so what seems to us irrational when we look at a very simple uh, ensemble probability outcome by adding together all the possible outcomes and averaging it isn't an accurate representation of how life is really lived, which is, you know, one chance at a time. Yes. And um, so I, I find this interesting because I think what's happening is that you might argue that marketing is fundamentally wrong about what people are doing when they choose to buy brands. That we think we're always trying to emphasize the positive. Do you remember there was an ad? You'll remember this because we're about the only people old enough in the industry <laughs> to do it. Do you remember there used to be this campaign for Hirondelle, which said, 
uh, which would show totally implausible or unlikely situations like castles in the air, unicorns and things. And the line was, it's about as likely as a dud bottle of Hirondelle. Yes, it was an Austrian wine, it, something like that. It, it was weird. some sort of weird white yeah. wine. And it was advertised by CDP, I think. I'm pretty sure it was CDP. Unless it was either Lowe's or CDP. And all the people there said, what we're saying in our advertising is that this wine is never dud, it's never shed. Okay. And they always felt totally... They said, it's not really claiming very much, is it? You know, it's not saying it's a good wine, it's just a... Now, actually... Looking back on it, bear in mind, of course, this was the 1970s, if I'm right, OK, where people didn't know anything about wine. Wine I, I, was very I, exotic. It was yeah. very exotic. People were terrified of making a mistake. I mean, the worst thing you do is take a dud bottle of wine and something, and then no one would be really, to be honest, because a lot of wine tastes pretty horrible in a working way. A lot of people were never sure whether wine was dud or not. So this area, some planner had basically said, look, this is all about confidence. It's not about, you know, this is the best wine in the world. It's all about knowing that when you open this bottle, you can all say this is actually wine as it's supposed to taste. The fact that it tastes a bit weird is because it's wine. It's not because it's corked or got off. And Paul Smith, who worked at the agency at the time, said we always felt that was a totally underselling the product. But I think looking back, particularly if you remember, you know, the market at the time where you had Blue Nun, yeah. Black Tower. Yeah. <laughs> they ought to bring those back, shouldn't they? I worked for a those. Should be a, there should be a NAF wine movement which brings back those things. But th there was Black Tower, Blue Nun, Liebfrau Milk was the thing that yes. everybody knew how to order. Now, actually, what they were doing was, I think, really clever. I think the, the fact that actually nobody knew what they were doing. So at least when you bought a bottle of Hirondelle, which is what, French for swallow, is it something like that? I think so. But at least when you bought a bottle of Herondale, you knew this was how it's supposed to taste. You, were, you weren't committing a huge social gaffe by turning up and saying, hey, have a glass of this, and everybody else going, shit, it tastes like piss, what the hell's this idiot doing? It's a category where you do think you'd So I remember the Oddbins, they're successful on the fact, you know, you wouldn't have wine at home, you'd buy a bottle on your way to a dinner party, but you go in there, you'd read a little label someone had written, had saying written. this is yeah. Oki from the mountains in New, um, southern New Zealand, and you had a story to tell when you turned up with a bottle of wine. Yeah, you had your spiel already, yeah. didn't you? Yeah, no, I've never tried this before. Apparently it's quite oaky. Yeah, no, I mean, that, you're absolutely right. I mean, actually, the whole wine industry is really people buying the licence to bullshit, isn't it, really? I was fascinated. One of your examples in the book um, was about if you've got a bottle of wine you bought for $20, and it's now worth $70, yeah. what did it cost you? And people's different view about it. It's a oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. In other words, when really... I drink that bottle, do am I? is it costing me $70? Because I could sell it at auction for $70. So undoubtedly I'm foregoing $70 of utility by drinking the wine rather than selling it. Some people say, no, no, it cost me $20. That's what I paid for it. Some people say $20 plus interest. Um, some people actually say minus $50. Because I'm having a $70 experience, which I paid $20 for. Now, the interesting thing is the economists would say of the last answer, that is totally wrong. It's a ridiculous yeah. thing to say. And yet those people obviously derive the most pleasure from drinking the wine. Yeah, I'm drinking a fantastic From a hedonic thing, you're going, this is fantastic. Not only is it brilliant wine, but I'm basically 50 quid up on the deal. Well, now, because if you think about it, I mean, you know, I mean, it's a really fascinating question, that, because there isn't really a right answer to that, is there? 
Okay, so you bought it for 20 well, There was a fifth answer as well. I'm just trying to remember. It was $20, $20 plus interest, $70, which is, that's, after yeah. all, what I'm foregoing. I think it's time to call it close there. I think we'll do a part two. But ending mm. on talking about wine seems very good. Um, Roy, that's fantastic. If you buy the book, Alchemy, what the surprising power of ideas that don't make sense, well, lots of those examples are in there. And it's really interesting reading. Um, and what we'll do is share it on Fix Apple. It's also the reading list of some of the other people you mentioned too. So you can It's a fantastic, by the way. The format of the book is brilliantly Marmite. If you look at the Amazon reviews, most people love it. Uh, because it's short chapters, it's you know, it's it's a repeated anecdote with a few footnotes as gags to keep you amused. Okay, and there are one or two reviewers on Amazon who go. It drives them absolutely <laughs> apoplectic because they have some weird platonic view of what a book should be like. Well, I think I read both ways. I started from the work way through, and they've been dipping in and out. No, no, but really entirely, well. yeah. But the, um, the the little notes are there are very amusing as well, especially knowing you as well. So, Rory, thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure. Really thank enjoyed you very that. much indeed. Um, and let's do a part two at some point in the future. We'll do a part two anytime you like. Thank Fantastic. you. Fantastic. So that's a wrap. That's the end of our full conversation we had with Rory. Parts one and parts two are available, so it's worth listening to the director's cut of the full conversation. Um, really enjoyed talking with Rory and hope you found it really valuable. Thank you. <laughs>